come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ghouls Only Cast. This is number seven, and as always, this is Meg. I just wanted to take a moment here, since we are now firmly in holiday slash winter territory, to let everyone know that if you're not having the easiest time right now, I totally understand. The holidays are always tough, and when we're in circumstances that keep us from celebrating, or when grief keeps getting unexpectedly reignited, or if grief is still new, or when the seasonal depression kicks in, or gets compounded with other unpleasant feelings, it's just not the best time. I know that it's hard, and it doesn't help to just say that you should be thankful for this or that, that things could be worse, or that you're being ungrateful. I'm just here to let you know that no matter what, you can get through this. You've gone through painful times before, and you're wonderful, and you're strong enough to get through the holidays, and especially this upcoming winter. And being strong doesn't mean being perfect, it just means existing and trying. I mean, this year has been absolutely fucking exhausting. And you shouldn't be hard on yourself for feeling wrung out, or anxious, or depressed, or anything. I mean, the culture demands you to be happy at all times, on an oppressive level, every fucking holiday season, and well... I hope you give yourself permission to just feel whatever it is that you're feeling and take care of yourself accordingly. So, enough said, let's get comfortable, let's do something nice for ourselves today, and let's talk about an absolutely bonkers horror movie that was mostly born from the mind of a 10-year-old girl. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for joining me, and today I'm going to talk about the psychedelic horror film from Toho in 1977, House or Hausu. This episode has really been a long time coming for me. I want to say right off the bat that I am not talking about the 1985 movie House starring the dude from Carrie. I wasn't crazy about that one, but I absolutely love the 1977 movie and I've been preaching its divinity for years. In my shop, I have house enamel pins, stickers, keychains, just absolutely crawling with house stuff. The visuals, the earwormy music, the cuteness, the weirdness, there is no other movie that I can compare this one to. It is a beast of its own species. It hardly gives you a chance to breathe, but it pumps you full of conflicting feelings and just happily assaults your eyes with some of the most unique visuals ever put to live action film. It feels like a cartoon in a way, with some of the ideas being so fantastic that it's almost unthinkable to try to commit them to live action. A lot of people like to complain about House, saying that it's got no substance or that it's superficial, but those people just don't know how to sit back and enjoy something for what it is. You are here to see a girl get eaten by a piano. You are not here to get an enlightening glimpse into the psyche of a depressed person who mumbles for two hours. I mean, come on, just look at the original cover. A cartoony house with anthropomorphic features sticking out a massive tongue, or the Criterion cover of a huge orange cat with a distinctive, exaggerated mouth. If anyone sees this and, you know, is expecting a serious film, they're a fucking fool. This movie does evoke certain emotions, though, don't get me wrong, but none of them would put them in the same category as, like, what, Schindler's List? House evokes incredulity, gleeful confusion, artistic awe and inspiration. It makes you laugh. It is the cinematic equivalent of dangling colorful keys in front of a baby's face, and the baby clutches at the keys, drooling and cackling, and we are all the baby. The baby is us. 
except instead of keys, we've got ass-biting severed heads, floating lips, dancing skeletons, witchy white cats, and every single special effects trick you could possibly fucking imagine, and then some. It is the weirdest, most unique, most captivating experience that you will ever have watching a live-action movie. It is bursting at the seams with style and ideas and has made a huge mark in the realm of Japanese films and the horror genre, but the oddity that is house does not start when you press play. No, this story starts off weird right off the bat, with two polar opposites that don't make much sense in the same sentence, and that is Steven Spielberg's Jaws and television commercials. When Steven Spielberg's Jaws came out in 1975, it was obviously a massive success, and it helped create the modern business model in Hollywood of churning out massively profitable movies that are high in concept, but ultimately very shallow. I mean, you know what I mean, the movies where you go to the theater and have a great time watching it, but the more you think about it afterwards, the less and less you realize that you actually liked it. I mean, Jaws is not necessarily an example of this, but if you have any grievances with the way big Hollywood movies get cranked out today, you can directly thank Jaws for setting that in motion, whether it meant to or not. But due to what a blockbuster it was, you could obviously expect that there would be movies that would seek to ride its coattails. This is a fairly typical practice that persists to this day, but it had just a slightly different flavor back then because special effects were still majorly practical. Asylum movies that we see today look like fucking 2001 A Space Odyssey in comparison to some of these movies. Star Wars is well known for having a lot of knockoffs right out the gate like Star Crash and The Black Hole, and Bruce Lee even had movies coming out after he passed away like The Clones of Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee Fights Back from Beyond the Grave. But Jaws had a fairly vast catalog of knockoffs as well. There was my favorite, Orca, starring the awful man that I love to watch, Richard Harris, about, well, an orca seeking revenge for the murder of its wife and child. I tend to really piss people off with this, but I actually like Orca more than Jaws. There's also Piranha, Eaten Alive, Tentacles, and Grizzly to just name a few. Pretty much any killer animal film that swims in the wake of Jaws could be considered a Jaws knockoff, which is a kind of strange way to look at the success of a film. To watch a movie that has great acting, an extremely memorable score, and a compelling story and just think, hey, the people clearly want an animal that kills people and just run with that concept. But the name of the game is making money, and at the end of the day, for the most part, these other movies did just that. It is now the realm of possibility then for foreign markets to want to make some money off of this craze as well. When you think of the Japanese film company Toho, the first thing that likely comes to mind is Godzilla, a series that Toho has been behind for over 30 films at this point. Godzilla in the late 60s and 70s was going through a bit of a phase, so to speak. At the end of the Showa era, around the time Jaws came out, he had essentially stopped being a metaphor for nuclear weaponry and instead began to take a bit of a turn in the Gamera direction. Gamera, of course, being another giant monster or kaiju franchise, but where Godzilla was traditionally an existential threat and essentially a horror movie villain, Gamera was a friend of the children and a protector against other evil monsters. So for a while, instead of people fearing Godzilla and the military trying to kill him, he was suddenly the champion of Japan and kids loved him. So you have movies like Son of Godzilla, Godzilla's Revenge, and going into hyperdrive with Godzilla vs. Hedera, which sometimes feels like house and its more experimental components. So Godzilla could never be a Jaws cash-in. It was already well-established as a franchise, and it wasn't in a similar genre anymore. And Japanese horror, as with all cultures, had existed long before the advent of film and television. 
As I said in my episode about shoujo subaki, horror is closely married to culture and history, and Japan had a rich history in kabuki and no theater from as far back as the 14th century. This fact, of course, seeps strongly into the flavor of Japanese horror, where films traditionally revolved around kaidan, or ghost stories, about the vengeful spirits known as yokai, either being based around Shinto gods or any being with untamed energy called mononoke, which plays a part in this movie I'm talking about today. A lot of early Japanese horror films are closely tied to the atrocities of World War II as well. Godzilla was one of the very first major examples of this. And some decades later, Toho was really intrigued by the success of Jaws and wanted to create a Japanese reflection of modern horror films of the West. And this is where Nobuhiko Obayashi comes into the picture. Obayashi was born in 1938 with his destiny already planned out for him. His father was a doctor, and as the story usually goes, his father wanted him to be a doctor as well. Obayashi always had an artistic edge to his personality, though. Being interested in drawing, animation, playing the piano, and writing, he entered college with the intent to become a physician at the behest of his father, but less than a year later, he gave up his father's dream to pursue his own aspirations. He was accepted into the Liberal Arts Department of Seiyo University, where he began making experimental short films, learning the ins and outs of working with 8 and 16mm film, and helping to form a collective at the College for Avant-Garde Filmmaking called Film Independent. A notable member of the collective was Donald Ritchie, who made a few short films but is much better known as an author on Japanese culture, and more significantly here, a Japanese film historian. In fact, in a foreword to one of his books, Paul Schrader, the director of Cat People, which we talked about in episode 3, remarked that, quote, Whatever we in the West know about Japanese film, we most likely owe to Donald Ritchie. And I just find it kind of fascinating how I don't set out any intentions to make connections between the movies I choose for these episodes, but you can almost always find something. But anyway, along with other innovative directors starting to make a name for themselves at this time, including Shuji Teriyama, whose work inspired Hiroshi Harada for the live shows of Shoujo Subaki, which you can hear more about in episode 4, Nobuhiko Obayashi set the tone for the experimental filmmaking of Japan throughout the 1960s. As it usually goes, artists tend to be very close to their art and have different ideas about what it means to sell out or become overrated or whatever. That's the same for pretty much any creative endeavor. There are always people that think that if you reach any amount of monetary success that you've done something wrong. It's a cycle that essentially tries to keep everyone on the bottom rung because of intense jealousy. But some people just choose to set their own path. When Obayashi left the university, the Film Independent Collective, of course, still existed. Because the collective had so little money, they were all making movies that were one to two minutes long. And what else is that long? TV commercials. And having gotten plenty of notice at local film festivals and distribution by the Art Theater Guild, professional companies started putting out feelers looking for talent to help with advertising. Everyone in the collective turned down the offers outright to come and work for Densu Incorporated, but Obayashi essentially said, yes, I would like a paying job that will pay me real money and I can live. Thank you. TV advertisements were still a relatively new medium at this time, and Obayashi showed a particular flair in directing them, employing some of his experimental techniques that got people's attention, which is exactly what a good advertisement should do. He went on to direct over 3,000 commercials throughout the late 60s and 70s, making a solid name for himself in one of the only creative parts of that corporate world, and getting to work with a few famous actors and musicians. There's one ad that you can find on YouTube of a cologne that has possibly the worst name I've ever heard, it's got Charles Bronson in it, and it's called Mandem. 
Like, I don't know, it just sounds like a novelty condom brand to me or a BDSM term. Like, whatever it is, it just doesn't sound good. But Charles Bronson just dumps the stuff all over him like he's trying to get a demon out of him. And there are these strange dreamlike shots overlaid of him jumping into frame and firing a gun. It's just, it's so bizarre, but like, that's the idea, right? Japan has been known for having really bizarre commercials for a very long time. And right here with Obayashi is kind of where it began. His style of commercials as an amateur director caught so many eyes that eventually he was approached by Toho to make a film like Jaws. Obayashi thought that a linear approach to making this film, like substituting a shark for a bear or some other kind of animal, was a bit too simplistic and what any other boring adult could come up with. Still though, he wanted to employ some way of making a fantasy film that had an atomic bomb as part of the theme because, and this is an important thing to remember, Obayashi was born in 1938 in Onomichi, a city in the Hiroshima prefecture. He said that all of his earliest friends died when the bomb dropped and his father was forced to become a battlefront physician during the war. His earliest, most formative years were shaped by that event, as were so many other filmmakers at that time. But someone whose fears weren't shaped by the war, though, was his 10-year-old daughter, Chigumi. Her fears were, of course, childish, unexplainable, and abstract, but still terrifying in the way that only a young mind can conjure. She was afraid of the grandfather clock in her grandparents' house because it was so loud. She was afraid of getting her fingers jammed in the piano. She was afraid of the futons falling on her and attacking her in the closet when she visited her grandparents. And Obayashi took note and asked her what other things might be scary. She said it would be scary to pull a head out of a well, a mirror's reflection attacking her, and the big one, a house that eats girls. That's the Jaws connection. The movie, of course, doesn't have a house literally chewing people up like the artwork suggests. It's a bit more nuanced than that, which we'll get into soon enough. Here's the thing, though. When Toho approached Obayashi to make a film, they didn't want him to make the film. Japan, as far as I've been able to tell, has a corporate culture that extends even into creative endeavors like filmmaking. They wanted him to come up with a concept for a script because they liked his commercials and wanted to take a chance on an amateur director, but they never intended for him to actually direct the movie. Obayashi didn't write the screenplay either, it was written by Chiho Katsura. It seems to me that they wanted him, of course, but because of the systems in place, they had to work through several angles so that although he was not a part of the process, he still was. Does that make any sense? Toho greenlit the project within three hours of Obayashi handing it in, partly because it was just so unlike anything they could have expected. And then the script languished for two years because... Like I mentioned in the Shoujo Tsubaki episode, filmmaking and animation is still a salaried job in Japan. You work on a film because you are already employed by the company backing the film. Obayashi wasn't on Toho's existing payroll of directors, so he was not even considered. Here's the thing though, none of Toho's directors wanted to make the movie. Each of them thought that House would kill their career if they touched it. They all made fun of the film and thought it sounded ludicrous, but Obayashi never stopped working on it. He announced to public outlets that the film was greenlit, and then he took off on his own and had the soundtrack made ahead of time, he had a manga made of the story, there was a novelization of the script, he did some advertising and product tie-ins, and he created a fairly successful radio series based on the story. So finally, Toho buckled and was basically just like, uh, do you want to direct it? And of course he did. Apparently the film was very fun to make for all involved, that Obayashi would literally skip around and people would sing together and it was overall a very pleasant experience. 
Some of the girls are shown in various states of nudity in the film, which was pretty damn common seeing how popular the pinky violence films were at that time, but nothing bad ever happened that I could find. They're young girls, certainly, but limitations are different in different countries and I don't feel like reading about foreign law. Sorry. The main takeaway from the movie is the effects, and man, there are a fuck ton of them. Obayashi used his experience in both advertising and experimental filmmaking to achieve some of the video effects, and keep in mind, Japanese films had never used video effects before House came along. And many of the other effects that were called for, Toho didn't even have on hand in their special effects department, so the crew had to get creative with it. And creative is an understatement when it comes to some of this stuff. But there really isn't much to say about the actors and actresses in this film because other than Gorgeous and her auntie, none of the others were trained actors. They were models that Obayashi had worked with on commercials, which explains why sometimes a close-up on one of the girls doing something looks just like that. A commercial. That isn't to say the actresses aren't entertaining. They most certainly are, but Obayashi's background in ads certainly made it easier for them to navigate acting in a film. The dialogue is almost always delivered with an upbeat tone that is exaggerated and just not what you would expect from a horror movie at all. And partly that's due to how he chose to direct them. Instead of telling them what to do with words because it was difficult to get the right mood out of them, he chose to use the soundtrack on set as a cue. That's why the girls sway a little bit like they're dancing sometimes and have a sing-songy lilt to their voices occasionally. It's because they're being directed by music. There are seven girls in the group, lucky number seven, seven samurai, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Seven Seal, seven is just a very popular number for whatever reason. That would usually make it kind of difficult to keep track of all of them, but because a dude who made ads made this movie, the girls wear their whole identity as a name tag and don't leave you any guesswork as if you only had a maximum of two minutes to understand their character. The main girl, gorgeous, is fashionable and pretty. Fantasy is always pining for love and sighing dreamily. Prof has glasses and a book and is intelligent like a professor. Melody is musically inclined. Sweet is very gracious and helpful. Kung Fu is fit and ready for a physical challenge and she is the best girl there, I said it. Mac is always hungry and is what 70s Japan seemed to think was fat. It's funny to me because I don't think she even looks remotely fat. She's just a little thicker than the others, but whatever. But the girls hardly ever stray from their archetype, and their names make it all the easier to keep track of who's who. Except for the first couple times I watched the movie and couldn't remember fantasy or sweet, which are kind of weak archetypal traits and can frankly be interchangeable sometimes. The girls are fantastic though, and the movie wouldn't be the same without them. And I include the auntie in that, played by Yoko Minamita, who had a massive working career in film and just brings this creepy, cute sophistication to her character that is so memorable and fun. Alright, I'm getting so antsy now. Let's get into the plot of one of the wackiest, most wonderful movies I've ever seen. Here we go, everybody. This is House. <laughs> the opening title sets the tone immediately. The title card is hand-drawn, and it has this animation that makes sense when you see it, but it's kind of hard for me to describe to you right here. Like, okay, imagine the O in house being a pair of lips, and then the lips are like eyelids to a single eyeball, and then the lips spit out a hand. I really kind of struggle with explaining it any other way, but you get that, and then a voice like Lurch in the Adams Family bellows, house. A girl screams and a really cheerful piano loop begins playing. It's the theme of the film and it will get stuck in your head so strap the fuck in. 
Two girls are doing a little photo shoot together in a school's chemistry lab. The girl being photographed is called Gorgeous, and her friend behind the camera is called Fantasy. Already, less than a minute into the film, there are several different color effects and editing techniques that will absolutely confuse a first-time viewer. Learning that Obayashi was a director for commercials makes all these stylistic choices make so much more sense. For some of these instances, you can practically imagine a logo for shampoo or something popping up in a corner, like it's really uncanny. I won't point out every stylized effects choice for this film because there are just so many piled together on top of one another. You know, like when you were a kid or new to the Microsoft Office suite, you had to make a PowerPoint project at some point and you used every single word art possible and sometimes you did word art in the Wingdings font? That's this movie. So it's the last week of school before summer vacation and Gorgeous is all set to go with her single father to his vacation home. Meanwhile, her other friends are set to go to a training camp with their teacher, which I assume is just, I don't know, summer camp. Aside from all the weird effects and editing, one other thing that I want to point out before I move on is that everything in this movie is positively glowing. Like a commercial, again, but it really enhances the dreamlike quality of the film. You won't hear anywhere else about a horror movie that glows like a soap opera. Gorgeous returns home that evening to find that her father has finally returned from Italy where he was scoring a film. He says that Leon told him that he was better than Morricone. That line is a bit of a throwaway, but Gorgeous's dad must be fucking incredible seeing as how Sergio Leone and Morricone collaborated a lot, most notably in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which possibly has the most recognizable score of all time. It's a very bold claim to make in a movie. Gorgeous's dad reveals that he didn't return home on his own and introduces Gorgeous to his new partner, Ryoko, and says that she will be her new mother. Ryoko is a very classically beautiful woman who always, every single time she's in a scene, has a fan somewhere out of frame blowing directly at her so that her hair and scarves are always in a constant state of fluttering behind her in an almost ethereal manner. In this scene as well, they're standing on a balcony that is very obviously a set with a dreamy matte painting of a sunset in the background, and there's soft yellow and orange lighting that just really, really gives an unreal quality to the film. It is so beautiful and yet so artificial, right down to the plastic plants and astroturf on the balcony. Ryoko wraps one of her scarves around Gorgeous and voices her wishes that they become friends over the summer, but Gorgeous is visibly upset by this, which makes sense because her father's been gone for a while and then just returns home one day with a new fiancé. Gorgeous has also kind of fallen into the domestic role over the years, though, and isn't thrilled that there's going to be another person there to take care of her dad. Her mother passed away eight years ago, and her father is just ready to move forward. Gorgeous takes the mature route after hearing this by running away and throwing Ryoko's scarf over the side of the balcony. She returns to her bedroom to look at pictures of her family, deciding that she will not be going to the vacation home with her father and his new fiancé. After spinning in a circle to magically change her outfit, she scribbles over her dad's face in all of her pictures and vows to her mother that she'll bully and berate him for letting them down by meeting this woman. The fascinating thing they decided to do in the shots showing the pictures is that she has color pictures of her and her dad, but then there are black and white photos of them together. But in these ones, she's supposed to be her mother. It's kind of weird, but I guess it makes sense. She notices her mother's sister in a bridal picture shown as a video for some reason, and in a great example of famous last words, wonders aloud how her auntie is doing. So school is nearly over, and all seven of our girls make their appearance together, conveniently sitting in a line and acting in perfect accordance to their names. 
fantasy is blowing bubbles and fantasizing about their teacher, Mr. Togo. Prof has John Lennon glasses and is reading a book while pointing in the air when she talks. Mac is eating a donut and talking about food. Kung Fu spikes away a rogue volleyball that comes hurtling towards their heads. Sweet is apologizing a bunch, and Melody is playing the guitar. They're having a conversation, but it mostly is just setting up their personalities and letting it be known once again that they're going to some inn and then a camp with their adult male teacher, Mr. Togo, which I guess isn't weird at all. Gorgeous joins the girls and Mr. Togo shows up in a literal dune buggy on the campus sidewalk to tell them that his sister's inn won't be open this summer, so the girls won't be able to go to the training camp. I don't know how the two are connected, but the girls are pretty upset by this news. This, by the way, is the teacher that the girls think is super hot, and he just looks like a member of like a Japanese equivalent to the monkeys. His chops have enough mutton to feed a small medieval village is what I'm getting at here. Outrageous facial hair. But anyway, Gorgeous pipes up that the girls should join her on her trip, not with her father as planned, but to her aunt's house. An interesting thing to note here is that she invited six people, well, seven including Mr. Togo for reasons unknown, to her estranged aunt's house, and then wrote a letter to inform her aunt that they were all coming and that she hoped that was okay. I mean, call it a different time, but I would be so incredibly pissed off if my niece, who I'd only met once before, invited herself and seven other people to my house and then told me about it. It just seems unbelievably selfish and weird, especially knowing that this is just because she doesn't want to properly meet her new stepmother. I mean, I know that whole situation is awkward and usually upsetting, but this just feels like an extreme. Gorgeous is the villain in this movie. Let's just get that out of the way. She's the one that seals their fate. A little thing I wanted to note here is that when Gorgeous is writing the letter, you can see that she has a print of the painting Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth. The subject and composition of it feels like it really fits in perfectly with the motif of this movie, and it doesn't really mean much. I just wanted to point it out because I really like that painting. But anyway, as soon as Gorgeous has finished penning her letter, a very large white Persian cat appears in her window, knocking over her mother's picture on the desk. She doesn't think anything of it and just cuddles the cat. Some time passes and the cat reappears on top of Gorgeous's mailbox, where there's a letter hanging out conspicuously. Her aunt has graciously accepted that her house is going to be bursting at the seams with people she's never met, and says that she's been waiting to hear from Gorgeous for many, many years. Meanwhile, Gorgeous's father is lamenting to Ryoko that maybe he spoiled her too much, and Ryoko decides that she will go to the aunt's house towards the end of their visit and talk to Gorgeous one-on-one. -on -one. She is very determined and hopeful to be a mother to her, and sees this as the first trial she'll need to face. The next scene is Mr. Togo heading out in his weird Broadway-style neighborhood where there's all this hustle and bustle in these apartment buildings where a cobbler and his daughter are dancing as they work and there's a donkey wandering around. Everyone's saying good morning to each other and then there's this song. Oh my god, it is such a fucking earworm like you would not believe. The bulk of the soundtrack for this movie is made by this band, Godaigo, and the main song that gets played a few times in the movie makes its debut in the scene, and it's called Cherries Were Made For Eating. It's sung in English, and it is sickeningly catchy. One reason why I get hesitant to rewatch this movie sometimes is that this song will inevitably get stuck in my head for at least a full 24 hours. Godaigo has had a few hiatuses, but they're actually still active today, having made 55 studio albums. They were the first rock band to ever play in the People's Republic of China and Nepal, 
which is an interesting little tidbit, and one of the members left the band for about a decade to be a radio evangelist in America, but then returned later on. That's kind of weird. But this song is just too infectious for its own good. Another important thing to point out in this scene, though, is that the cobbler's daughter is none other than the imagination behind this whole movie, Chigumi Obayashi. The scene is just so cartoony and cute, and it makes you really wonder, like, how the fuck this movie could ever be considered horror in any way, shape, or form. Mr. Togo is heading out to join the girls when the white Persian cat, Blanche or Shiro, whatever you want to call her, crosses his path and causes him to fall down some stairs. This whole next sequence is done in stop motion, not unlike something that Jan Schwankmeyer does in his films, but this is just so much more slapsticky. He falls ass first into an empty bucket and then slides all over the road, unable to get it off. The girls find out via a phone call at the train station that he will have to meet up with them later because he has to go to the hospital to get the bucket off of his ass. Happens all the time. The girls head to their train and get flirted with by the members of Go Daigo. One of them is even wearing a band t-shirt and lip-syncing the lyrics to Cherries Were Made For Eating. And you get this feeling that the movie is really messing with you with all of its use of matte paintings because you assume that they're all still outside, but they're actually downstairs at a train platform. It's really clever and it's slightly jarring when it happens. And it happens again a little later when the girls get off their bus. They get on the train and each one of the girls shoves Nobuhiku Obayashi out of the way as he very theatrically says a loving goodbye to a woman on the train. He was such a fucking cutie and I had never noticed him before my last viewing of this and it was like watching Dario Argento's Deep Red for the second time and actually seeing the face in the mirror. Like it was one of those Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV moments. The girls get to their seats and the cat is already sitting in a seat waiting for them. A little boy is reading to his mother about trains, and the train in the book animates and takes over the screen, which kind of makes me think about the weird little animated segments that are in Godzilla vs. Hedera. The girls ask Gorgeous about her aunt, and she tells them her story, but it's like they're watching an old film together and commentating over it. In 1942, her aunt's fiancé was all set to take over her late father's doctor's office, but was drafted into the war. The actor playing her fiancé is Tomokazu Mura, the dad from The Taste of Tea, which is a fantastic movie that I hope to talk about someday. But back in the day, when this movie was made, he was famously known as one half of the Golden Combi, with co-star and future wife Momo Yamaguchi, where he always played her romantic interest in a series of movies. Obayashi actually directed one of these movies the year after House came out, called Take Me Away, and the aunt, Yoko Minamita, is in it too. So his inclusion in House was kind of a joke to have him there in a movie as a romantic partner of someone else. But to get back to the story, her aunt's husband went missing in the war and was presumed dead, but she's been waiting all this time for him, just in case. Gorgeous's mom went on to be married five years later while her auntie just had her white cat to keep her company. They show the atom bomb going off and one of the girls yells, ooh, it's like cotton candy. Like, for fuck's sake, kid, are you for real right now? Oh my god. But Gorgeous says since the death of her grandmother, her aunt has been all alone. The girls wander off into the woods after getting off of their bus, going over bridges and across several matte paintings until they come across a cartoonish man selling watermelons, who is also the guy who said, house, over the title card. He's acting needlessly creepy and seems to know something weird about Gorgeous's aunt. 
He directs them towards the house, which is the only one around and sticks out like a new zit on picture day. They could not have missed it if they tried. He says the lady will be pleased and starts laughing spookily to himself. They get to the house, which is half set and half matte painting, and a stuffed owl zooms by on a wire, which is, I don't know, it's kind of hilarious. Blanche seems to open the gate for them and reappears on Auntie's lap, who is sitting in a wheelchair just beyond the gate. She has white hair and sunglasses, but is otherwise very well kept, even if her character seems to be a take on the Miss Havisham character from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, who, as we all know, looked like a spectacular wreck 24-7. Fantasy offers to take a picture of all of them together, and Blanche's eyes flash with lime green stars for a moment. This causes Fantasy's camera to fly out of her hands and shatter on the ground. Matt catches up with them finally with a watermelon that she bought from Mr. Creepy, and they all enter the house for the first time. It's dark and cobwebby, and something happens where the crystals on the chandelier flash with colorful stars and then shoot out at the girls, killing a random lizard on the ground, and Kung Fu has to save them, but there are these weird quick cuts in between Kung Fu and Blanche that make them look like they're turning into one another. It's, it's completely unexplainable, you just have to see it. The girls get settled in for the evening and help clean the house while Melody discovers the grand piano that Auntie used to give lessons on. She mentions that she used to give so many people lessons, even from the nearby town, but no one comes to see her anymore. Prof brightens her mood by saying that they'll cook for her tonight, and by that, she means that Mac is going to cook for them. The girls are startled when they hear a loud clock striking the hour, a little nod to Chigumi Obayashi once again, and some foreshadowing of what's to come. Gorgeous Auntie and Mac go into the kitchen and we very briefly see that when Auntie addresses something, like the stove, it moves a little bit. So she's like a Sophie and Howl's Moving Castle style witch, at least the book version, that you know she can give life to inanimate objects by speaking to them. The fridge is busted though, so Mac decides to keep their watermelon cool in the well outside. Auntie makes an offhand remark that Mac looks very tasty, and if this were any other movie I'd expect the R&B music to kick in, but we have to keep remembering that this is supposed to be a horror movie. The girls all sit down to eat with a creepy painting of Blanche staring at them from the far wall, which they all seem to think is cute for some reason. Mac runs off to get her watermelon, and eventually they start wondering where she is. Fantasy goes to the well to look for Mac and pulls up the watermelon. Only it isn't a watermelon, it's Mac's head. Her head laughs in Fantasy's hands, and there are a ton of artifacts around it since they use a rudimentary blue screen technique, which makes it look, you know, that much more interesting looking. You hardly ever saw this kind of stuff in movies in the 70s, and just like I said before, this is the first Japanese film to ever use video effects. Fantasy tries to get away from Mac's floating head, but the head just happily chomps down on her butt like it's a cheeseburger. There's a great bit here where they used a really bad wax dummy's head and it pitches forward, spitting pink water everywhere before falling backwards into the well once again. Fantasy runs inside and suddenly Auntie has reappeared. She had missed out on dinner because being in the sun made her weak, but now she seems more vibrant and isn't wearing glasses anymore. The girls are all having a conversation with a petrified fantasy that reads almost exactly like dialogue from Lassie, but instead of trying to decipher from Barks that Timmy's in a well, it's a decapitated head in a well. Auntie offers to go look and just gets out of her wheelchair like it's nothing. Prof is only slightly surprised by this, but everyone else just ignores it to go to the well. As to be expected, they pull the watermelon out of the well and just laugh at fantasy for fantasizing about things. In one of the most iconic shots in the movie, they're all eating watermelon and fantasy sees Auntie's mouth pop open and an eyeball is visible between her lips. She even looks around with it and you can see that it's a glass eye, but the effect is still really cool. 
The girls assume that Mac just went looking for more food and go about their business, not even noticing that the water faucet in the kitchen is running red. Swede is cleaning the house and Blanche leads her into a closet where a doll is calling her name. Meanwhile, Gorgeous takes a bath and there's a cool shot of long black hair coming out of the water and coiling up her back like tentacles before eventually retreating. Kung Fu chops wood to heat the baths and is attacked by the logs, but she quickly chops them away with her hands. I get it, chopping wood, very cute. Auntie seems like almost a different person now, dancing around the house like a drunk and then she disappears into the fridge and then she reappears on the support beams running along the top of the house and then dances with the skeleton in her father's old pharmacy. We get a great rendition right here of the house theme song that's made in almost entirely out of cat meows too, which, you know, really amps up the terror level here to the 10th degree. Gorgeous wanders around the house until she finds her aunt's vanity table, and at the same time, Melody returns to the piano and the metronome begins playing by itself. Of course, she begins playing the house theme song. Gorgeous, upstairs, rummages through her aunt's belongings and begins putting on her lipstick. She notices her reflection change and morph into her aunt's, and then suddenly the glass shatters and the mirror bleeds, causing Gorgeous's face to crack into small chunks of fire that eventually engulfs her entire body. Back downstairs, Blanche watches Melody and her eyes shine again, causing the keys of the piano to begin flashing in bright primary colors. Sweet is still trapped in the closet and remarks in a memory that any cat can open a door, but only a witch cat can close one. Speak of the devil, the damn cat is in there with her, and suddenly Sweet is being attacked by the bedding in the closet. They shot it upwards from a glass floor so that you can see everything, which I think actually looks really cool. The other girls hear some wailing and go to investigate, and Melody claims that she was bitten by the piano. The girls go to check on Sweet now and can only find her clothes and the cat, so they assume that she's just taking a bath. Fantasy is the only one who seems worried that something bad is happening, but the girls reassure her that Mr. Togo is on his way to protect her, and that launches into a full-blown dream sequence of this mutton-chop beatnik man in finery riding on a horse, and then it starts skipping like a record until Kung Fu comes back into the room. They all go looking for Gorgeous, who reappears but is acting very demure and strange. They decide to call the police to help with their other missing friends, and when Gorgeous picks up the receiver, you can hear voices screaming for help, but she just puts it back down and says that the phone is out of order. Gorgeous offers to go to the police station in town, but wants to go alone, and at the end of her sentence, her voice has changed into her aunt's. Blanche follows her outside, and once she closes the door, it won't open back up. A large stuffed mummy, I mean, it's supposed to be a mummy, but it just looks like a big stuffed animal, falls into frame for some silly reason, and it just absolutely scares the bejesus out of fantasy. Like, that, of all the weird stuff that happens in the movie, that is the one that I never really get why there is like the stuffed animal mummy that falls on fantasy. It serves no purpose. The house starts shutting itself up to keep them from leaving, and everything at this point goes absolutely fucking insane. Windows and doors are slamming with gunshot sounds and laughter and wind howling all overlaid on top of each other to make a total cacophony, and things are flying around the house. Outside, Gorgeous is just wandering around in what looks like a missing set from Excalibur, huffing dry ice fumes and juggling bits of light. And hey, remember Mr. Togo? Dashing, beautiful Mr. Togo? He's stuck in traffic with a ton of truckers, if you were wondering. You know, don't forget, he's still in the movie. 
Back at the house, Kung Fu has decided to just kick and punch everything she sees while Prof tries to make logical sense of everything. They decide that the best thing to do is to find Auntie and just ask her how to open the door. Simple. <laughs> they find Mac's hand and hair preserved in a jar and decide that the best plan of action at this point is for Melody to play the piano to brighten their spirits. Eventually, they think they can hear Gorgeous singing upstairs, even though they would have heard the front door first, and they go looking for her again. Melody is now firmly stuck to the piano while the keys are flashing again, and she can't seem to stop playing. Prof and Kung Fu find Gorgeous upstairs dressed in her aunt's bridal costume. Downstairs, Blanche's eyes flash at Melody again, and the lid of the piano begins to eat her fingers. There's this cartoon-like spiky pattern going all around the edge of the screen that flashes in primary colors while this is happening, and the piano just eventually gobbles her right the hell up, and it is incredible. There's severed limbs flopping around, and there's shots that are done through a nearby fishbowl that are pretty strange. And at one point, Melody's severed head floats out to look at her naked legs flapping around in the piano, and she laughs and goes, ooh, that's naughty. Like, this is the absolute defining moment of the movie that makes you say, okay, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with anything that comes even remotely close to girl chastises herself while being eaten alive by Technicolor piano. And I would bet on that. Upstairs, Prof finds a diary that Auntie had been keeping, and Kung Fu discovers Sweet's body trapped inside of the loud grandfather clock that's now bleeding in all colors of the rainbow. They run downstairs and wake Fantasy, who's passed out from shock, and Prof sees that Melody's severed fingers are still playing the piano. They go into the back room and begin trying to figure out what to do when a man's face springs into frame and presses itself against fantasies while he practically inhales a bowl of noodles, which is really fucking jarring and possibly the only jump scare in the movie, if you want to call it one. It's actually a scene transition and we see that Mr. Togo is eating at a noodle house and one of the chefs is a taxidermy bear. That's normal and fine. Let's keep moving. The house sounds like it's breathing at this point, and the girls are barricading themselves into the back room with all the furniture that they can find. Prof is reading the journal that she found while Kung Fu and Fantasy listen, when suddenly Gorgeous calls out to them, and her head pops through the wall, at least 20 times its normal size and taking up about a quarter of your TV screen. Gorgeous tells them that she's in her aunt's world and disappears, then different sections of her face materialize and say that her aunt has actually been dead for many, many years, and that she wanted to be married so badly that she lived beyond her own death so that she could eat the bodies of every unmarried girl that sets foot in her house. Apparently, it's the only time she can wear her bridal gown, whatever the fuck that means. There's one of my favorite sequences here where a drawing of the house grows and morphs until it finally turns into a photo of Gorgeous in the bridal gown. I don't know, I just think it's really cool. Things fly around the house and everything goes haywire while Auntie tells the girls that it's their turn now. Kung Fu fights back against the household items that are attacking her, which really makes me want to play Earthbound again. The painting of Blanche's face begins to morph into the iconic cat face that we all know and love, and Kung Fu makes a break for the telephone, which begins strangling her. 
Since she's the best girl, though, she fights back and even punches her way outside of the house to attack Gorgeous's ghost. The ghost leaves cat scratch marks on Kung Fu's face, while Prof realizes from the journal that the cat is at the heart of all this. Kung Fu bounds forward to destroy the cat painting, but the ceiling light snakes downward to attach itself to her like in Master of the Flying Guillotine, while the painting of Blanche fully transforms into the cat from the movie poster with a disturbingly clownish smile. This next part is just the coolest part of the movie, and it's almost impossible for me to put to words how incredibly creative, weird, and pretty the scene is. So Kung Fu only allowed her head to be eaten by the house, so her floating head is traveling through the ants world with the body parts of her friends on backdrops of faces, pastel flowers, rainbow spirals, skulls, dolls, and it just looks like the goriest but prettiest scrapbooking collage, but it's moving all the time. You really just need to see it for yourself. I loved it so much that I made an enamel pin of it. It's just some of the most intensely creative filmmaking ever. Now because only Kung Fu's head has been eaten, she's able to essentially eject her body from the lamp to kick the painting of Blanche. When she does so, a crudely drawn cat soul seems to jump from the painting and it falls to pieces making the cat painting spray blood everywhere. The real Blanche makes this weird vibrating kind of face that I've actually seen used in these basic memes, like when you and your cat see each other after a long day with like over 50,000 likes and it kind of blows my mind. But anyway, the real Blanche collapses and Gorgeous's ghost's bridal gown begins ripping and she begins bleeding heavily as well. The house has reached a fever pitch at this point and everything inside of it begins bleeding to the point where the floor splits open and Prof and Fantasy are clinging to floor mats while there seems to be an endlessly deep pool of blood beneath them. Oh, and Mr. Togo is still on the way, kind of. He gets to Mr. Creepy's watermelon stand, who tells Mr. Togo that the girls were eaten, and does he like watermelon? Mr. Togo says no, he likes bananas, and the guy freezes and turns into a fucking skeleton on the spot, which sends Mr. Togo into some kind of terror-induced time loop where he just sits in his car repeating banana over and over while smacking his head. So that's what he's doing these days. Back at the house, Prof is still trying to read the journal but falls into the blood, somehow losing her clothes in the process. Her body dissolves in the water, which was done with some ingenuity by Obayashi that he seemed particularly proud of, where they matched some paint to the blue screen and threw it onto the actress playing prof. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't like, you know, the paint that you do your walls with, at least I fucking hope not. But having eaten another girl, the ghost has regained some strength and posing as gorgeous yet again, fools fantasy into coming to her willingly. And it's really sad because Fantasy wanted so badly to believe that it was her best friend that even as she seemingly dies in Gorgeous's arms, she keeps telling herself that it's her, even though she could see in the blood reflection this whole time that it was Auntie. At a later time, we see Ryoko driving dreamily into the country, and I mean that literally. She looks like she's on Ambien or something. She stops her car and gets out, and just like before, there is a fan pointed at her just off screen to make her look even more dreamlike. She's at the watermelon stand but notices that there's no one around, just Mr. Togo's car that's full to the brim with bananas and the banana stack is wearing his hat. He went bananas. 
Ryoko takes a very sultry walk to the house with another Godaigo song playing in the background, which is a ballad that seems very heavy-handed in the let us have a marriage and buy a house as is tradition vibe. It's so corny, but cherries were made for eating probably wouldn't suit Ryoko as well, and I guess I should just be thankful because I don't want to hear it in my head when I'm trying to sleep tonight. Ryoko wanders around the property looking for any sign of life, and Gorgeous appears, dressed in a traditional kimono. She thanks Ryoko for for coming and invites her in. Ryoko asks if her friends are still asleep, and with her aunt's voice, Gorgeous says that they always wake up when they're hungry. Blanche runs by, and fire is superimposed over Ryoko's head. Auntie then says, with Gorgeous's face staring at the viewer, that even if flesh perishes, someone can live forever in the hearts of others. Therefore, love stories must be told over and over so that they can never die, and that love is the eternal thing. Which would be a really sweet sentiment if you weren't a fucking Miss Havisham cannibal witch ghost. And that's House. The credits are pretty adorable, just fun footage of the girls reappearing as their characters while the credits roll into the mouth of the House illustration with the huge tongue. It is such a great experience to watch this movie, and I know personally that we are really privileged here in the States to have it. It wasn't available at all in the States until 2009 or so, and it was only by serious demand of cult filmgoers that it got wide releasing on physical media and streaming. It became Obayashi's unique achievement a passion project that was well-loved by audiences when it came out originally in 1977, even if it was the B-movie for a sappy teen romance flick. The executives at Toho thought that maybe it would ruin their reputation, but it didn't. It got attention from audiences even though it had an English title, which was considered taboo back then. He won the Blue Ribbon Award for it, and it opened more doors for him than if he would have just kept making commercials for TV. Because, yeah, he made a lot of commercials, but true, honest, experimental filmmaking was his real passion. He went on to make a lot more movies, and he even came up with a concept for a Godzilla movie that would have been the most insane Godzilla film ever made. Seriously, just look it up. I'm not going to tell you about it. Just look it up for yourself. He did a film adaptation of Kazuo Umezu's The Drifting Classroom, and even after he was diagnosed with cancer and given just a few months to live, he kept going for several more years and made a few more movies in that time. Unfortunately, though, he passed away this year after a long, long battle with cancer, but he lived a long and full life full of imagination, and he gave us one of the most mind-bending achievements in live-action filmmaking with House. I adore House. It's just so playful, childish, dreamlike, but it's artificial, it's polished, and it's sure of itself. It has absolutely no pretensions, though, and it asks absolutely nothing of you except to watch to be entertained and to let yourself unload the emotional baggage of adulthood. To take the normal terrors usually displayed in horror movies like stalkers, murderers, diseases, and remember what it was like to be a child with irrational fears of clocks, dolls, piano lids, or other nonsense. I hope that if you haven't seen House, that you'll check it out soon. It's streaming on HBO Max right now, and you can rent it practically anywhere. But I say, if you got this far, just fucking buy it. It's the least we can do to honor such a remarkable, weird little movie that people had so much fun making together, and the legacy of a man who set out to find his own destiny with something new. And that's all I have for you right now. I hope that you have, or have had, a lovely holiday. Next episode, I'll be talking about Susan Seidelman, or is it Seidelman? I was gonna look it up before I did this. It's too late now. Susan Seidelman's amazing 1982 post-punk film Smithereens, starring Susan Berman, Brad Wren, 
and the one and only Richard Hell. I'll see you then. Take care, you guys. Thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul. Cool.